You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Our first reading this morning comes from the Old Testament from the prophecies of Zechariah. We'll read Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13 is one of the passages in the Old Testament which speak about the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Passages that were not understood in the time that the Lord Jesus Christ came and announced what he had come to do in this world. Zechariah chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day, I will banish the names of the idols from the land and they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, his father and mother to whom he was born will say to him, you must die because you have told lies in the Lord's name. When he prophesies, his own parents will stab him. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his prophetic vision. He will not put on a prophet's garment of hair in order to deceive. He will say, I'm not a prophet, I'm a farmer. The land has been my livelihood since my youth. If someone asks him, what are these wounds on your body? He will answer, the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name, and and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. We'll turn now to Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We'll turn now to our text for this morning, which comes from Mark chapter 8, the verses 31 through 33. He, that is Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed 
and after three days arise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you a few questions this morning, and I'd like you to consider in your minds with me the appropriateness of the actions that I'm suggesting you might take, whether you agree that this would be a good thing to do. Suppose it was quite unlike the weather that we've been having lately. Suppose it was actually a cold day in September, and you were sitting somewhere outside with a friend, perhaps enjoying a coffee, And suddenly you had the urge to pick up a, coal, a pail of cold water and to dump it over their heads. Would you find that that's an appropriate action to take? I think you'd probably say that's not very nice. How loving would it be if you were to wish, hope, even expect that this friend that you have would, who, who was finely dressed, well dressed, wearing a, a new suit, would go and get that suit so dirty and wrecked that it would be good for nothing except to be thrown into the trash can. I think you'd say that's anything but polite. How about if you were to expect, hope, that this same person would end up in the hospital with second-degree burns? all over their body? Or how about making the decision that this person should experience chronic pain for the rest of their lives? Finally, how appropriate would it be if you found a certain joy and satisfaction in the death of your friend? The immediate answer to all these questions is probably, on your part, an increasing sense of horror, shock at the prospect. You would think that only the worst kind of friend would ask or expect these kind of things from someone they love. But the question which is crucial, and the question that we are going to consider this morning is why? Why you would ask these things? Your intention, the purpose, and the result of asking these things of your friend. And as we will see, that changes everything. It's crucial to understanding what you are asking your friend to do. And so hold those questions in your mind as we consider this morning from our text that the Lord Jesus Christ in this passage, and it's the first time in the Gospel of Mark that he's done this, he reveals his mission. He reveals ultimately why he has come to his disciples. And he makes his mission very clear. He could not be more clear about it. Yet, It's surprising and even shocking to the ears of his disciples 
And yet, as the Lord Jesus reveals in his reaction to their reaction, this mission is absolutely necessary. He will not change. He will not back down. He must fulfill it. So first of all, the Lord Jesus reveals his mission. And as he does so, he does so clearly to his disciples. He lays out his mission in the world. This is why he has come to this earth. He's teaching his disciples at this point. So he wants them to know. And he wants them to understand. We read in verse 31 that Jesus began to teach them. He's teaching them. He wants to make clear to them. He's being very deliberate. In verse 32, we read that he spoke plainly about this. At times, the Lord Jesus used parables. He would cloak the meaning of what he was saying in these parables, which were riddles that some would understand and that some would not. Well, as the Lord Jesus Christ has just his disciples in front of him, he's not saying any parables here. He's being very deliberate and very clear so that they won't miss the point. The nature of what he's going to say to them is so crucial, so important, so world-changing, that the Lord Jesus Christ does everything to make his, his communication clear and simple. The nature of the message requires that there be absolutely no misunderstanding in the minds of his closest servants. So he lays out for them what is going to happen to them, to him. He says he's going to suffer many things. And that's pretty clear. We all understand what suffering means. Some suffering is not something that most people would look forward to. And the suffering that Jesus is anticipating is quite extensive. He's not going to suffer once. He's going to suffer many things. Suffering is going to characterize his life from now on forward. And the Gospel of Mark and all the other Gospels go on to show the types of sufferings that the Lord Jesus experienced. He was most certainly correct when he said that he's going to suffer many things. He also said that he's going to be rejected by the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law. Now, these are the, the rulers in Israel. Under the Roman government, the local provinces were allowed to have their own government underneath the governor from Rome. And in Israel, they had the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. Elders, of course, were an old institution going back all the way to the time of Moses. The chief priests were the leaders at the temple. And the teachers of the law were, were learned and respected experts in biblical law, which was like the constitution for Israel. In short, these were the most influential and honored leaders at that time. And these were the very ones, these leaders, these respected and honored leaders, were the ones who were going to reject Jesus. And of course, that comes true. As the gospel continues, we see how increasingly it's the leaders in Israel who are opposing the Lord Jesus Christ. First opposing his teaching, then becoming jealous at his popularity, and finally committing themselves to putting him to death. Jesus goes on to say that he's going to be killed, 
And after third, three days, he's going to rise again. Now, clearly, there's a progression going on here. He's going to suffer. And that suffering is going to be characterized by rejection. And that suffering and rejection is going to end in death. But death will not be the end of him, he tells his disciples, because he will rise again. That, of course, is the, the culmination, the climax, the highest point of all the Gospels. When the Lord Jesus Christ dies on the cross, but then rises again from the dead. And so his mission, as he lays it out here, it it comes true in the gospel. It's very clearly and simply stated. It's right there for the disciples and for us and for the whole world to understand. This is what Jesus Christ has come to do. It also makes it very clear that this isn't an option. These things might happen. It's not a vague generality that you might expect from some soothsayer, some fortune teller. I expect these things are going to happen. No, Lord Jesus Christ knows what's going to happen. He tells his disciples clearly. But yet, the mission which he proposes, or which he makes clear, reveals is surprising and even shocking to the minds of the disciples. Now, when we read this, we say, oh yeah, that makes sense. We know the gospel. Many of us here know the gospel. We've heard this so many times that, that you almost gloss right over it. Of course, that's what Jesus came to do. That's what our whole faith is based around. We don't question that. But we need to understand, when the Lord Jesus stated his mission to his disciples, they were surprised, they were shocked. They couldn't understand or fathom what he was saying. We need to also understand then that this is the first direct revelation or uncovering of Jesus' mission for his disciples. This passage is really the hinge on which the whole gospel of Mark turns. Up to this point, The Lord Jesus has been teaching, has been performing miracles, but he hasn't really begun to experience that suffering and rejection. You haven't really begun, as you read, to anticipate the death that is coming his way. But after this point, increasingly it will become clear. And so up to this point, the disciples have not expected what the Lord Jesus reveals as he speaks to them here. And every part of this revelation of his mission was surprising to them. He he told them, we have to sort of get ourselves into their shoes or sandals, get ourselves into their cloaks, and imagine what it would be like to be standing there and hearing our rabbi, who has just been confessed as the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God, to say these things. As he says to them that this Messiah is going to suffer. That was not the vision that the people of Israel had for the Messiah. Now, they were living in anticipation of a Messiah, of a conquering warrior who would come, who would be sent from God to deliver them. This conquering warrior was going to be the son of David, the great warrior king himself. He was going to ride on the clouds. He would ride on a powerful horse. He would trample his enemies underfoot. They were expecting a king from Psalm 2. The king whose wrath would make his enemies tremble and flee before him. They were expecting 
the answer to the to Psalm 24, who is this king of glory? Well, we would certainly expect to understand this king of glory when we see him. A suffering would imply a king of humiliation. Surely, this could not be a Messiah who would come and suffer. It would also be surprising to the disciples to hear that it was the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law who would be the ones that would ultimately reject the Messiah. Were these men not the most righteous men in Israel? Were they not the ones who were the most studied in the scriptures? Certainly these men would be the ones who would know what the Messiah would look like because they had their, spent their lives studying God's law. Were these not the men who lived closest with God and who followed the path of righteousness? Were they not examples to others? How could they reject the Messiah? And if they would reject the Messiah, what hope would anyone else have? And the third claim was also surprising, shocking to the minds of the disciples, that the Son of God would be killed and would rise again. Now, it becomes clear as you go on in the Gospel of Mark that the disciples never really understood what Jesus was talking about when he said that he was going to rise from the dead. And that's clear from Mark chapter 9, the verses 9 through 10. If you have your Bibles open, you it's right on the same page or the next page from where we are. Mark 9, verses 9 through 10. Jesus, as they were coming down from the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. So they never really understood what rising from the dead was to mean. And that becomes clear also after the Lord Jesus is put to death. They don't seem to be living in anticipation of his resurrection. And if they failed to grasp the resurrection from the dead, what sense could they make from the fact, as Jesus states it, that their king is going to die. If they don't understand he's going to rise from the dead, then they really aren't going to understand what it means that he's going to die. That's going to be the end of him? What is that going to mean for all those who follow him? And so this message was surprising to them. It was more than that. It was shocking. And so Peter, on behalf of the disciples, He rebukes Jesus. The mission that Jesus describes doesn't make any sense to his ears. This cannot be. This cannot be the way that things ought to go. The Christ should be robed in glory and honor. The Christ is worthy of praise. The Christ ought not to suffer and to be rejected and to die in humiliation. That's all wrong. Peter finds the message offensive to his ears. And so in strong language, we don't know what he says, but certainly he uses strong language to say to Jesus, no, this is not going to happen. This is not the way that things ought to go. The message was offensive to his ears. And that's not surprising because the message of the cross is offensive. The Apostle Paul calls this message offensive. 
He says Greeks look for wisdom. Jews look for signs. But the message of Christ crucified is foolishness. A stumbling block for Jews and foolishness for Greeks. It's not what people are looking for. The Lord Jesus will say to Peter later, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Minds of men do not fathom this mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a mission of of vain glory, of self-conceit. Those are the sorts of missions that, that appeal to the mind of man. We want immediate success. We want conquering heroes. But this is a message of suffering and rejection and death. It's a mission that shattered expectations and stretched preconceptions. And to add to the surprising and even shocking element, we need to understand that this whole idea of of humility, what the Apostle Paul talked about in Philippians 2, have the same attitude of Jesus Christ, that before Jesus Christ, no one had really thought that this was much of a good attitude at all. Certainly not the Romans and certainly not the Greeks. There's no passages in in the wisdom of the Romans or the wisdom of the Greeks which says that humility is a virtue. That humbling yourself before others is a good thing. They were all about honoring yourself before others. Always keeping the appearance of being in control, of being powerful. Humility was despised in the culture of that day. The goal of everyone was to move up in society. The idea of moving down in society was absolutely unthinkable to them. And so this message that the Lord Jesus Christ gives is a shocking and disturbing message. And that's what the message of the cross is. It's shocking and disturbing. This is the message. This, yes, is the gospel, the good news of Christianity. For all Christians, this is the central message which we embrace and hold dear. That our Lord and King, the Christ, the Son of God, made himself powerless against his enemies. Allowed himself to be mocked, rejected, suffered insults at their hands, and went to his death without offering resistance. And that he died, and then he rose from the dead. A lot of people would think that this is crazy. A lot of people do think that this message is crazy. Muslims reject this idea entirely. First of all, they reject the divinity of Jesus Christ. But the idea that God would humble himself before men is completely unthinkable to them. God is entirely autonomous, distant, separate from men. The whole point of Islam is that you submit to God. God's not going to change. He's not very compassionate. And so you just submit to him and hope for the best. The idea that God would come and submit himself to mankind is utterly ridiculous to the mind of Islam. Buddhists aren't going to go for this either. Why would Jesus enter into the suffering and rejection of humanity When the whole point of life and existence is to detach yourself from suffering. 
When the whole point is to remain aloof about suffering. To get, get so distant from it that you become separated from it altogether and live a life of nothingness. And for the modern atheist as well, what sense can you make of this message? This message of the cross. Please, a God who, who makes himself weak and dies? And this is supposed to be an example to us? It's offensive to our evolutionary heritage. Rise from the dead? It's a front to every scientifically minded secularist. And for the run-of-the-mill Canadian, self-improvement and self-preservation is the name of the game. Everything exists so that we might have a little more and a little better life. Why would anyone care about anyone else so much as to give up their life and die for them? And what would they hope to accomplish in the process? We don't know what Peter said to Jesus. We know what was in his mind. It was the preconceptions of men. It was what mankind expects from a savior. And so Peter issued this strongly worded rebuke to Jesus. Jesus' words were offensive to Peter. They were offensive to his values and his expectations. And so he told Jesus that this was not going to happen. But yet the Lord Jesus would not back down from this. Because he didn't state his mission because he thought that that was a good idea at the time. He stated his mission because this was the plan of the Father from all eternity. And this was the very purpose for which he had come to the earth. And this mission was absolutely necessary. Now, if Jesus' description of his mission was surprising, perhaps you find his response to Peter even more surprising. He says nothing less to Peter than, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Can you consider a stronger rebuke coming from the mouth of the Lord Jesus than to call someone and his ideas Satan? Now, Jesus has used that language one other time, and that's when he was speaking directly to Satan. And he said, get away from me or get behind me, Satan. But He's talking to Peter here. He's talking to his disciple, one of the twelve, one of the three, his right-hand man, the spokesman of the other disciples. What is going on here? Now, it's clear that the Lord Jesus is not directly identifying Peter with Satan. He's not saying that Satan has somehow overtaken Peter's body and is, is speaking through Peter's mouth. This is not the same thing as the Lord Jesus casting out the demons earlier in Mark. Neither has Jesus turned to someone else as he speaks this rebuke. He speaks to Peter, the one who says these words. What Jesus means with this rebuke is made clear for us in the line that follows when he says, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. There is a clash going on here. There is a battle, a battle of ultimate purposes. At one end is God. At the other end is Satan. And the minds of men align themselves with Satan. 
In rebuking Jesus' mission, Peter is aligning himself with Satan's purpose. Satan's mission is to frustrate God's plan, to put an end to his plan of salvation, to somehow make it so that mankind is not saved and God is not glorified, and to keep mankind in the darkness into which he's plunged himself. That's the character of of Peter's words as he rebukes Jesus. And that's why Jesus rebukes Peter so strongly. In the strongest manner possible, get behind me, Satan. Yes, Jesus is the Lamb of God. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He invites all to come to him and find rest. But he has absolutely no tolerance, no acceptance for these words of Peter. Why not, you ask? Why speak so strongly to Peter? He might hurt his feelings. Why doesn't Jesus just lay off? Why didn't he take Peter aside and say, you know, Peter, actually... You might want to think about this. Is Peter, can Jesus not recognize that Peter's motivated by love? That he wants the best for his rabbi? For the Messiah? Avoid rejection, avoid suffering. There's a better way. But there is no better way. The Lord Jesus Christ knows that. And so he speaks this strongly worded rebuke. Rejection of this idea of Peter. The reason that the Lord Jesus rebukes Peter so harshly is because his mission is so important. It is absolutely necessary. It's absolutely necessary for the very one to whom he speaks so strongly, Peter. It's absolutely necessary for the salvation of all of God's people. It's necessary for the spread of the gospel around the world, for the triumph of Christ's kingdom, and for the glory of God the Father in heaven. Let's suppose it's a cold day in September and you're sitting on a patio with your friend enjoying a coffee. Suddenly, at a nearby intersection, a transport truck runs through the lights and runs right into a bus full of schoolchildren. As that bus begins to burn, and all those children are trapped inside, you know immediately that the friend who's sitting across from you has the training and ability to rush into that fire and to save those children. Would you not find it necessary to go and grab the closest pail of water and to dump that over the head of your friend? Would you care about his suit, no matter how nice or expensive it is? Would you tell him to stop because he might experience burns all over his body? Would you say don't go because there's the possibility that you will experience pain for the rest of your life? You could even succumb to the flames and to the smoke and die. If your friend was able to go in, into those flames and save those children, would you not cheer him on and encourage him and find joy as he goes to make the ultimate sacrifice. You see, context changes everything. You cannot save someone from the fire without entering into that fire yourself. The nature of the problem dictates the character of the solution 
and the necessity with which you have to pursue it. When Peter rebuked Jesus, he's essentially telling Jesus, don't jump into the fire. What he failed to realize at that moment was the nature of the problem that Jesus Christ had come to earth to deal with. He didn't come in response to a minor problem, which came, which called for a minor solution. The problem wasn't that the Romans were ruling over this small area of the world. The problem was that sin and Satan were ruling over humanity. He came in response to a dire problem that called for the most extreme of solutions. The problem that had plagued humanity was that they had rebelled against God and had plunged themselves into suffering and death as a result. As God, responding to their rejection of him, had cursed mankind. Rather than enjoying life under God's blessing, man had sought to to make himself like God. But that had resulted in God's punishment against them. A punishment which characterized this whole world and all the suffering, all the death that came as a result. The only solution was that the Son of God Himself would come and enter this problem, would come into the flames, would come into human flesh, experience the fullness of life under God's curse as a sacrifice for sins, that He would go and experience the fullness of God's wrath on the cross, suffer under God's judgment, die, give Himself over to death, and then rise again. Every part of Christ's mission reveals his purpose in saving us from sin. He suffered because he became one of us. He became, he, he entered into our flesh. He entered into our experience, the experience of, of the curse of God so that he could redeem us from that very curse. He was rejected by the leaders of Israel because they could not accept him. They had discovered a way of salvation that excluded God and that excluded their hearts as a problem. The Lord Jesus had told the chief priests and teachers of the law that they were the problem, that their hearts were full of sin and that they had to repent of that and they hated him for it. They found a way of salvation that didn't require a savior. And so they put to death the son of God. The Lord Jesus died because that is the wages of sin. Death is a result of sin. That was the nature of the problem. That was the flaming bus that humanity was stuck in. That was the dire situation which called for the ultimate sacrifice. And the Lord Jesus came to this earth to make that sacrifice. And he arose Because he was victorious over death. He paid the price for sin. Death lost its grip and its sting. Death had no hold on Jesus. And so God raised him from the dead and showed the whole world that Jesus Christ was the Savior. He was the very one whom humanity needed. The hope and the joy of sinners. This 
is the central message of Christianity. This is the message which our sin-filled world needs. And this is the message that each one of us is lost without. The mission of Jesus Christ was to suffer, to be rejected, to die, and to rise again. Why? For us, for you, and for your salvation. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.